0: Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you.
1: Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. When I did my training, the standard party line was that if a skeletally immature patient has an ankle injury, is tender over the distal fibular physis, and did not really have significant tenderness over the lateral ankle ligaments, the injury should be assumed to be a Salter-Harris-1 fracture. If you aren't familiar with the Salter-Harris classification system for fractures affecting the growth plate, a Salter-Harris-1 fracture goes straight through the physis, so an x-ray usually doesn't help us with diagnosing this problem. A Salter-Harris II fracture goes through the physis into the metaphysis, or towards the shaft of the bone. A Salter-Harris three fracture goes through the physis and into the epiphysis, or it's towards the joint side of the bone. A Salter-Harris IV fracture involves the metaphysis, the physis, and the epiphysis. So think of it as like a combination Salter-Harris II and three fracture. And a Salter-Harris V fracture is a crush injury of the physis. However, the Salter-Harris one fibular fracture makes a clinical assumption the way we talk about it. But what does the research say about this injury? Today on the podcast, my guest may change your approach entirely on this diagnosis and our preconceived notions. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Kathy Budis. Dr. Budis is a graduate of the University of Toronto Medical School, followed by a pediatrics residency and pediatric emergency medicine fellowship at Children's Hospital in Boston. She also completed a master's degree in health research methodology at McMaster University. Currently, she is a staff physician in the emergency department at the Hospital for Sick Children and a professor of pediatrics at the University of Toronto. She has also acted as a research director in pediatric emergency medicine and is currently the vice chair of the Research Ethics Board. She also gets the distinction as my first international guest on the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. (laughs) Buddhis.
0: Thank you so much. This is actually truly an honor to be here and be invited to be part of this podcast yeah you know, the fact is I've been doing research in this area going on you know maybe 20 years now and while a lot of work goes into deriving the evidence a lot of it would be lost if we didn't have opportunities like participating in these podcasts to translate the evidence
1: I agree. And I, I'm really looking forward to this discussion today. I've actually had this on my list for several months now of doing this particular topic. And I actually thought of just initially doing it as an episode where I would just kind of talk about the literature. And then I'm like, wait, I have someone here who's done kind of like the research in this area here. And as I started looking into the research and your background a little bit more, I'm like, I'm going to have her on the podcast. So I'm glad you accepted the invitation. You know, I I think it is a common assumption and common teaching in pediatrics about the Salter-Harris-1 fibular fracture that if you have the right tender area, you're skeletally immature, there should be some assumption that there may be a growth plate fracture. I mean, I get patients in my office all the time from urgent cares, from emergency medicine settings, from pediatricians. I even wrote a pediatrics article about the ankle sprain imitators in pediatrics, and I actually included on that particular article talking about the Salter-Harris-1 fracture and, and how you have to have all these kind of preconceived notions. But you've conducted some really interesting research on this topic that I really want to get into today. But before we get into that research, I, I'd like to learn a little bit more about your interest in musculoskeletal and sports medicine diagnoses in the emergency department. You know, I've looked at your background of research. You've asked a lot of questions and researched a lot of musculoskeletal and even concussion questions. Yet you aren't from a sports medicine background, which really gets me excited. So, what made you interested in these topics?
0: Yeah, so it's actually kind of interesting the way you sort of look at that perspective, because I think people fall into sports medicine, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of people's love for sports medicine derives from people's love of sports, either having been an athlete or, you know, loving sports. And for me, I came to the field of sports medicine, really because of the love of the injuries. And, It evolved later. So, about 10 years into my practice, I actually considered doing a sports medicine fellowship. And then my husband actually said, But you're you're not athletic. (laughs) So you don't know anything about sports. So, you know, in the end that idea sort of went away. But the way it actually started for me was I was a fellow in pediatric emergency medicine. And I really have to thank Dr. Suzanne Shu and Dr. Ben Allman, who is an orthopedic surgeon, and Suzanne is a Pem physician. They really saw an opportunity there that musculoskeletal injuries presented to emergency departments as one of the most common complaints, but there was almost no evidence on how we diagnose them, how we manage them. And so I have to thank them really, because what started off as a fellow project really became my career.
1: You used a little terminology there that I want to clarify for my listeners because I have listeners from all backgrounds use PEM, that is Pediatric Emergency Medicine. So just so in case your listeners were wondering when she said PEM, what exactly that was. So just in case you need that little tidbit of abbreviation there. But I'd like to shift focus back to your research on, on this injury. You've published two articles specifically on Salter-Harris-1 fractures, and we'll be sure to actually have links to those articles in our show notes that you can reference back to. So I encourage you to go back and look at these actual uh, articles themselves. The first one you published in the journal Injury in 2010, so now we're 13 years ago from that particular article. It looks, from my looking at it, it was kind of more like a pilot-type study by the numbers you had in there, just kind of testing the waters here. There was 18 patients enrolled. And take us a little bit through kind of what made you start to get interested in doing that as even a
0: pilot project. Ultimately, actually, the goal of that project was changed because of what results we found. When we first started that particular study, what I had noticed really was that there's a lot of diagnostic variation in terms of who calls something a Salter-Harris-1 of the distal fibula versus a sprain. And I found that variation across countries. I found it within institutions. I found it even within an institution when we referred cases like this to fracture clinic that many of them got reclassified to sprains. And I was like, That doesn't make any sense. I was taught, just like you said, that essentially the weakest part of the musculoskeletal system is the growth plate. And so if if a child's gonna twist their ankle and have some weight-bearing limitation, then the most likely diagnosis is a growth plate fracture and not a sprain. So actually the goal of that original one was actually to derive a clinical decision rule to see were there clinical criteria, the amount of swelling, the amount of pain that allowed me to predict on clinical examination which ones truly had a fracture versus a sprain. We did not expect to find what we found was that in MRI imaging, which is the only modality that we can use to identify growth plate injuries that don't also include part of the bone, we did not expect to find no Salter-Harris-Wine injuries. (laughs) And so while it did serve as important pilot work, it really shifted question. It really shifted the research question from deriving a clinical decision rule to exactly how common is this? And even more importantly, you know, does it matter? And I think, as you say, it was a feasibility study as well, because it allowed us to pilot test our research operations to see what kind of challenges we might face in, in recruitment and enrollment. But really, the better study was the following study.
1: You know, when we're talking about that particular study, what you found was nobody in <laughs> and, the and, and what you scanned had evidence of a Salter-Harris-1 fracture, although these were all presumed to be Salter-Harris-1 fractures based on clinical criteria that were already what we usually pre-assume to be the case, right?
0: Yeah, that's what we found. It's interesting. At the time I did the study, you know, Bob Salter actually worked at the Hospital for Sick Children for many years. And when I came on staff there, he was an emeritus, but he actually worked, he was at sick kids a lot. And, And I would bump into him in the hallways and I'd say, hey, you know, we're doing this study. And I think that even though he Believed in this entity of the Salter Harris one of the distal fibula as being potentially the most likely diagnosis. What he always knew was that it was a benign injury. I think for him, semantics in terms of the clinical outcome and how you manage it, because preceding this study, we did another study where we randomized kids with a presumed Salter Harris one fracture of the distal fibula to what was standard of care, which was baloney casting, more of a sprain like management. And he said, or nothing at all. You know, because he's, I think he always knew that these were very benign injuries. There is something to talk about in terms of Salter 1s of the distal fibula versus Salter 1s of other, which I think is an important point. So I don't know. Yeah,
1: well, we can talk on that because we actually had a little conversation through email back and forth about that particular thing. And so we certainly we can talk about Salter 1s of other areas. I will still say from clinical experience, you know, out of all the injuries that I see in sports medicine and and from pediatric orthopedics, kind of going down that route, because I do have some some kind of play in that area in my practice as well as a non-operative pediatric sports medicine physician, I do see a lot of kids with growth weight fractures and you know, I personally have not seen many of the Salter-Harris ones, even in other areas. You had mentioned the femur, and I'd love for you to talk about that particular one because I, I do think that that's an important one that we need to talk about. But honestly, I don't know that I've actually diagnosed many other Salter-Harris one. Fractures. Yeah, I think it, the
0: main point I want to make is that they should be thought of differently. That's yeah. all. I mean, I'm not, there's really, there isn't much research on it because they are pretty infrequent, as you say, right? Like even the distal, the Salter-Harris one of the distal radius is something I think it's a little overdiagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, as with the other article, it's an imprecise thing to begin with. So I just mostly want to make the point as to why they're different I like that they are different, they can be different, and I don't want to group them all into one thing, because I think the reason Bob Salter knew this was because he knew something about the anatomy of that growth plate versus other growth plates. So maybe I'll talk about that, and you can decide what you want to do with the information.
1: Sure. Well, and I think the other important part there, too, is they oftentimes will present very differently, too. You know, if you have a Salter-Harris one, if you have a fracture of your femur period, it's very difficult for that patient to bear weight, typically, yeah. without some yeah. significant challenges. Yeah, yeah. And the and thing we have to remember, yeah. yeah, with the fibula, you know, the fibula, it's, it's at most 10% of our body weight that it takes when we're bearing weight on it. I've had many examples I can give you of fibular fractures that I've seen traumatic and also f- related to ankle sprains. I had a, actually had a gymnast once who had a completely displaced mid-shaft fibular fracture who competed for three weeks on that and just was wondering why it kept being sore in the lateral mid-portion of her leg. And when they came in and we got the x-rays, the dad's jaw almost, I mean, like fell to the floor when he saw that it was actually a displaced fracture through the fibula. So, so fibulas can really fool you that they're not that big of a deal of a problem. And that's kind of, I think, why we've always kind of had that assumption is we need to think about it. We need to think about it as a bigger deal because it's a bone injury. But in reality, you know, avulsion fractures of the fibula, I treat those like sprains as well. I don't, you know, a yeah, small little should. tiny flex. I yeah, mean,
0: you, yeah, you don't really need idea. to treat
1: those like true fractures.
0: And, you know, if you think about the plastic surgeons, when they need bone, they get it from the distal fibula because yeah. they know, relatively speaking, it's a, a very unimportant bone.
1: Well, the second study that was actually published in JAMA Pediatrics in 2016, it looks to be more of a follow-up over that extension of that first study like we were talking about. And as we know, when you start delving into research and you ask a question and then you find something you weren't expecting, well, that just leads to the explosion of additional (laughs) questions, as we all know, when you start conducting research and then we got to have to go down that rabbit hole too. go ahead and take us through what you what kind of got to that next study. Obviously, we I think we know that because of what you found initially, and then what were what were the results of what you found out when you looked at this further?
0: Our study wasn't the only one at this stage that had found that particular finding. There was others that didn't have that as the specific question, but in their search for MRI findings of X-ray negative ankle injuries, this was also one of the things that they found that there was either no reports um, or very, very few. So by this point, we had sufficient pilot data to really do a more definitive study? Because I think that there's actually a little bit of fear in both the patient and physician community around the possibility of a growth plate injury. And, you know, some of that fear is founded in the more advanced Salter-Harris Fractures, but what I was taught when I was going through medical school, and the way I was taught in residency, and even in fellowship, is that to think of them like one, two, three, four, five, where a Salter-Harris one of the distal fibula was the same as a Salter-Harris one of the distal radius, and that's one of the nuances that, in fact, turn out not to be. Absolutely correct. So, having had that background information and some reassurance around the anatomy of the distal fibular growth plate, we decided to proceed to the larger study because the medical community needed it to do something that they saw as de escalating care for something that people are worried about. So, we did this two site study, and it was within the Hospital for Sick Children and Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, where it was thankfully, logistically, very possible to get MRIs of the ankle. And the things have changed at the time, actually, getting an MRI in Canada wasn't always easy. So sometimes I feel guilty that, you know, our study patients got MRIs of the ankle faster than they got head MRIs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But in any case, we had these two sites. And we were fortunate over the study period to enroll 135 children. One of the things we learned from the pilot study is that because ankle MRIs for this purpose are actually not very common. We had to be certain that in fact, changes we were seeing were consistent with the Salter-Harris one fracture versus sprain versus other. And so what we did was we actually MRI'd both ankles, both the injured ankle and the uninjured ankle, so that there could be an internal comparator when we saw things that they were in fact consistent with a sprain or ligamentous tear, or, you know, avulsion fracture or the Salter-Harris one. So amongst that patient population, it turns out there was only four patients that demonstrated some evidence of a Salter-Harris one fracture. I will say two of them, in fact, were partial and barely visible. And even the two, um, I'd have to share with you the MRI, MRI images, but even the two were barely visible as it were. Speaking to, again, the clinical significance of this type of injury, irrespective of the MRI findings, But what was more interesting actually was the massive spectrum of sprain type of injuries that ranged anything from a bony contusion to partial ligamentous injury to complete tears. And our collaborating radiologist before becoming a radiologist was an orthopedic surgeon (laughs) and She was so impressed with the degree of sprains that she said that in an adult, this would be debilitating. And so she purposely actually went to the orthopedics clinics to follow up some of these children who had these advanced imaging findings. And to see them running around looking fantastic was very eye-opening for her. And so I think the most important thing is that really came out of this study is that, yes, the Salter-Harris-1 injury is infrequent even when it does occur, it is minor and is often accompanied by sprain-like injuries as well. And that the vast majority of our cohort had some spectrum of sprain injury. And finally, which is probably the most important, is that irrespective of the MRI findings, almost all of these children recovered completely within four weeks and the very few that did not did by three months. So from a clinical important standpoint, I think we need to sort of move away from the specific exact diagnosis on imaging and focus more on the clinical importance of this kind of injury for children and that they recover very well, irrespective of the specifics.
1: Agreed. And I I always joke with residents when I see them in my clinic or when they're rotating with me in my clinic about the, the worst thing you can do is actually get an MRI of someone's ankle after a presumed ankle sprain. In the sense that when you look at the report for somebody after an acute ankle sprain, it looks like basically by the description someone's ankle just exploded because they talk about the bone contusions, they talk about complete tears of ligaments and in reality with the number of ankle sprains that occur on a daily basis around the world. You know, I always kind of talk about, you know, if, if these were that debilitating of problems with the degree of kind of the severity of what's described on the ankle MRI, we should have as many foot and ankle surgeons in our world as we do McDonald's, because it, it sounds like it's this horrible problem that's there. And in reality, from a functional standpoint, the vast majority of people do very well. So that's good that I appreciate the fact that after a month that these kids were seen to do well, even with what was shown to be, you know, ankle sprains, basically, rather than, than Salter-Hurst-1 fibular fractures. We will be right back after this quick break. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can. With Perpetual Advertising, here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual Advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks months, even years, after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment, real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort now, by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Dr. Mark Halsted here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at Podcast dot com. Thought about a career in
0: voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective, on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that's truly outside the box from The Voice Box. voicefarmers.com That's voicefarmers.com
1: No, back to the podcast. There were a couple of other articles that I wanted to just touch on, one that we'll probably talk about more. There was an article that came out also the same year as that you published yours that was, again, a smaller number of patients, but also had the same type of findings. It was published in 2016 in the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics B by uh, Hofsley. And to summarize briefly, and we'll have, again, a link to this article in the show notes as well, there was 31 patients from the emergency department studied, 18 males, 13 females, mean age of 10 And MRI was conducted at roughly a week post-injury. And and again, none of the patients in that study were found to have a Salter-Harris-1 fibular fracture. So again, we get more and more numbers of patients here that it still shows you that this is truly a fairly rare injury, even though when there's a clinical assumption made. I think the more interesting article here, and we can have a little discussion about this as far as uh, physical exam, because that's one of my areas that I love and why I love musculoskeletal medicine is is the physical exam part of things, was this article by Dion that was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2021. And what they did is they looked at the accuracy of the physical exam and the determining the location of the distal fibular physis. So how good were you as an emergency medicine physician of locating where the physis is anatomically? They looked at 71 patients, the mean age was near seven, and they actually looked at the, the ability of these pediatric emergency medicines physicians' ability to identify the level of the fibular physis within five millimeters of the actual location of the physis when compared with identifying the location via ultrasound. So they actually used ultrasound to determine where the level of the physis was. The physis width just it just anatomically, it's three millimeters. So they felt if it was greater than five millimeters away where you were thinking that it was, it wasn't felt to be that you were accurately determining where it was and you're probably pushing on something else. And that's always a challenge. I mean, if you're looking at a little kid and little bodies and you've got an adult hand, you know, getting things precisely on a particular location can be a challenge sometimes, no question about that. So you have to you have to really know your anatomy well, which you know we know from medical training, it's not We don't do a very good job for most of our primary care uh, for anatomy and musculoskeletal and sports medicine topics. I mean, there's plenty of published research out there that shows that we're not good at that. The pediatric emergency medicine physicians who were studied here were only able to identify the physis accurately. So that's within that five millimeter window based on this study definition, 34% of the time. So two thirds of the time they couldn't find where it was based on their criteria here. Their argument here is that the the previous thought that if they were tender over the physis it could be diagnosed clinically it can't really hold obviously if two thirds of the time you can't identify it anatomically on your exam so I'd love your thoughts, kathy, about this uh, this study on looking at the anatomy here.
0: Yes, so I really appreciate you bringing this article to to my attention and you know it never ceases to amaze me that a problem that I've thought about for such a long time and in such depth and the 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 premise by which this study was conducted surprised me actually because I had not been taught that you had to more precisely locate the growth plate to be able to to consider this injury. The way I was taught was that generally if there's maximal tenderness over the distal fibula that whole region that one should consider the Salter Harris one injury. So the idea that we had to be very precise was not in my way of of considering this injury um, and diagnosing it. So on the plus side, (laughs) on the plus (laughs) side, they confirmed, you know, why I was taught the way I was taught in the sense that it is a very hard thing to be able to know exactly where it is. There's so much unknown about this because we cannot know the age or individual variation on where that growth plate might exist in a given patient. And without knowing that how can we look for it and as you say there's so many confounders when one injures a growth plate there is bound to be some soft tissue findings associated with that i mean it does in in our mri findings actually you could see the blood sort of tracking up the periosteum so you're going to have some findings that go around the growth plate as well Mm -hmm. so from an anatomical standpoint one would expect this to be a very imprecise process So all this to say, I don't know that I would have thought of it quite this way, but it's nice to see this article demonstrate that, that if we're going to be considering this injury, that maybe our own precision and locating the growth plate isn't a criteria that we should be relying on.
1: Which I think also lends itself to discussing a little bit the auto ankle rules when we're talking about, do we need to get actually any imaging to start off with? And just, you know, I think a lot of people sometimes translate the auto ankle rules and they think of the whole malleolus as the area where you're where we're talking about tenderness. But if you actually look at the true auto criteria, it's straight down the middle. It's not the anterior or the posterior portion of the fibula because once you start to include those two areas there, that's where your anterior and posterior tail or fibula ligaments attach. When you're talking about those areas, obviously if they have an ATFL sprain, you're going to be sore probably on that anterior portion of the distal fibula. So if you use that as your criteria, you're going to be x-raying a whole lot more of our patients that come in if you're not really following the true Ottawa ankle criteria rules for when they need an x-ray or not. It's just, again, it's where you, you got to know your anatomy. That's the thing I stress when people come and rotate with me, bring your anatomy books because we got to refresh on anatomy because if you know your anatomy, it, it's, it's a lot easier to find out where things are. If you don't know, then you're just guessing for a lot of these types of things and then your diagnosis could become just a sprain. But what ligament did get sprained and you can kind of sort that out with knowing anatomically where things
0: are. So I'm going to digress just for one minute again, yeah. Mark. With the, the, the auto, I can say a lot about rules because actually that's how I started my career, actually. <laughs> clinical decision rules, we developed an alternative to the Ottawa ankle rule called the low risk ankle rule. And part of the challenge with the Ottawa ankle rules, look, they are very valid in not missing any significant injuries. And if you look at their diagnostic sensitivity, they're very, very high. The whole premise, though, behind creating a rule is to try and minimize unnecessary imaging. And when you look at the diagnostic specificity of the Ottawa ankle rules, it performs very much the same as if a clinician were making that decision without any rules at all. So it might say 5 to 10% of kids getting an x-ray. But if you weren't using any rules at all, and you were just using your judgment, you saw the kid running around, very little symptoms, that you would probably not x-ray about 5 to 10% of the time. So it is great, but I think probably over calls and doesn't necessarily make an impact. So it's on the impact analyses, it doesn't necessarily perform as well. We had... Notice this actually, this was the project that I did in fellowship that my colleagues had noticed that the vast majority of children come in with what this can be described as a twisting injury. The idea was that the kinds of injuries that kids get in that setting are the rule out Salter-Harris one or a sprain or a minor fibular avulsion or a Salter-2. And that if you miss those because they have excellent prognosis that there would be no harm done and so we created the low risk ankle rule which is a rule that identifies children who have isolated tenderness and swelling distal to the anterior joint line and if it's isolated in that area and there's no no criteria for weight bearing meaning they might be weight bearing might not be weight bearing then they do not need an x-ray and this was validated, and we did a multi center impact analysis, which reduced radiography by about 25%, which is on par for applying the Ottawa ankle rules in adults. And, you know, we can go with the pros and cons of ankle rules, which is a whole other discussion. But I think the Ottawa ankle rules, as you say, if any rule is going to be applied, whether it's the lower risk ankle or the auto ankle rules, we have to be, they're only as good as the clinician applying them. And so, Paying close attention to the anatomy, as you say, and doing a careful examination of the ankle, independent of the rule, so above and below the joint, et cetera, all become very important in deciding whether or not an x-ray is actually indicated. And if you can't examine because the child is screaming or uncooperative or any of those things, then you can't apply the rule.
1: Absolutely. You know, I, I think we now have some pretty good evidence that we probably need to stop preaching about the Salter's one fibular fracture as being a common problem. Or, uh, I, I mean, I don't have any evidence now to tell me the opposite, that it is super common, even though, again, I think we we still probably talk a lot about the the clinical significance that it is there. And again, I think the the point you brought up earlier about is this clinically significant when you've got a kid who's hopping around and bopping around and actually clinically doing very well, you know, what what are we going to do for our management for that particular person? Is it really necessary to, you know, mobilize them as an example or treat them like a true fracture um, that we would normally treat other fractures that we're worried about becoming more unstable as an example or potentially delaying healing? And I love these things that dispel previous notions that we have. These are, these are the things I love. And it's, it's an area of, that I, we talk about a lot and why I'm part of the pediatric research and sports medicine society, the PRISM society, because there's a lot of questions that we have in pediatric sports medicine and pediatric musculoskeletal care that we have not answered. And we just go by dogma and kind of old things that are passed down. And this is how we treat it. And I, I love this study and, and what you've done, because I think it's really helpful. Are you, do you have any future plans in researching other things like this?
0: The one thing I'm gonna I'm gonna say about this is that like we talked a little bit about the worry that people have around growth plate injuries, uh, mm-hmm. keeping in mind that even in the more advanced growth plate injuries like Salter threes or Salter fours, uh, the percent of those children who then go on to have deformities or or growth problems is actually not that significant. So the one thing that can be really reassuring about the Salter Harris one fracture of the distal fibula is that even if it's there. The nature of the growth plate is that it's anatomically linear, and so it doesn't disturb the blood supply on either side of the growth plate, which is the root cause of growth arrest. Essentially, if you disturb the blood supply on either side of the growth plate, it enters into the growth plate, causing premature ossification and a bony bridge, which then causes growth arrest. Those are the types of things you might see more commonly in a salter one of the distal tibia, a salter one of the distal femur, um, even the distal radius, because the the anatomy of those growth plates are not linear. But you can be assured that, uh, that something like growth arrest would be exceedingly rare. But even if it happens, it's such a small percent of being responsible for growth, where the vast majority of growth actually happens at the level of the distal tibia and so the functioning of the ankle and the growth of the child depends almost not at all really on the on the distal fibula. So I hope that that's reassuring. I will say that of all my studies that this is I'm going to look back at the end of my career and say this one is probably the one that I'm going to be the most proud of because it really is impacting change not just for pediatric emergency physicians but it also resonates with general emergency physicians patients and orthopedic surgeons which I feel is like a real coup there actually yep. so i've gotten more questions about this study from orthopedic surgeons than all my other studies as a sort of surprise finding but a very happy finding i'm very optimistic about the the impact that this kind of study will make and has made. So in terms of other things, so, you know, the the type of research that I started in the ankle was funny when I was about five years into my career, I was meeting with a longtime mentor of mine, who's actually not a physician. And I said, you know, I don't quite know how I'm going to make a whole career out of ankle injuries. And he goes, well, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I have noticed that the body has other joints. And maybe you can extend some of your, you know, philosophy to other areas. And so, sorry, the kind of work that I have done and am doing is really extending the same ideas that were started with minor fibular fractures to other minor fractures. So there's a whole bunch of work that's been done with distal buccal radius fractures, and more recently, we've taken on the toddler's fracture as an effort to try and de-escalate the management of fractures that heal beautifully. And actually, the management that we apply probably causes more harm than good in those types of populations. So that's one area. The other area is that in all the research that I've done, of course, we've always had inclusion criteria, if they have to have Mm -hmm. a certain kind of fracture to enter, enter the study. And We've, in that process, discovered that there are some diagnostic accuracy errors. Of course, a sports medicine physician, I don't know if they come to you often diagnosed. I don't know if they're referred to you or they come with a diagnosis. So you may not face this challenge quite so much, but amongst family physicians, pediatricians, emergency physicians... We're often the first to see these cases, and we have to then make the diagnosis on images. And so since then, it's sort of exploded, actually, because what I thought was just an ankle problem turns out to be a whole pediatric musculoskeletal problem, and not just amongst ER physicians, but it includes general orthopedic surgeons and also general radiologists. And so we've developed a whole separate education platform called ImageSim, which is using some educational principles like uh, deliberate practice and cognitive simulation to try and expose practitioners to thousands of cases, sort of an experience that would take them years to get, but they get it in hours so that they can get that bolus and get the imprinting of pattern recognition so that they can be more accurate at the bedside to ensure that patients get the management they need at the time that they're, that they're seen. So those are two areas that, that I'm working on.
1: Yeah. And I, I would encourage people to look this up and we'll have the link for image sim in our show notes as well. I was pretty excited about this because again, when I was kind of looking at and researching about asking you to come on the podcast, I, I came across this and I saw this program here. And, you know, from a standpoint of just looking at educational tools that we could have for our residents and medical students who, you know, may for some of us rotate, you know, very infrequently in our clinics, And we're really wanting to try and get them kind of up to speed on looking at x-rays, and and especially for those that go out into general practice rather than in specialty care where they are going to have to be looking, hopefully looking at their x-rays, which is the thing that I always stress with them. You got to look at your own pictures that you order. Don't just assume that the radiologist got it right every single time. And I have plenty of examples of that. So, you know, I love my radiology colleagues, but we have the benefit of the clinical exam to couple with what we're ordering. And it's helpful to, to look at those pictures. And, and I love this tool. I definitely, it's something I'm going to look into a little bit more as, as a potential educational tool for us here to expand upon just x-ray diagnoses. I think that's, it's, it's awesome. That this tool's there.
0: I'm just curious, Mark, do you often get referrals or do they come to you straight off the street?
1: Yeah, our, our practices, it, it could be a direct coming into our office. So they don't necessarily have to see their primary care physician or go to an ER first. And, you know, a lot of our practices in sports medicine tend to be like very urgent visits as well. So we act like an urgent care in, in many ways. As an example, today I had uh, two patients added onto my schedule earlier today that were, were acute injuries that they came to us first primarily. So we, we see that. I know that that's the case for most of us that do sports medicine throughout the United States is, is we do tend to see a lot of those urgent visits that may just skip over their primary care provider. A lot of times the primary care provider is like, we know that guy, go see them. Yeah. We know that woman, go see her and and just kind of skip that because they know that that's not, that's not where they're trained the best. And they just know that they'll kind of get the things, all it's, the things that they need. It's really us. a
0: hard area to be really, really good at. Let's face it. Like, you <laughs> know, it's, it's, uh, it's. That's why you exist, right? That's why sports medicine exists. That's why and-
1: specialists exist, right? Because yeah. it's, you know, yeah. you need people in all the different areas because it's hard to know all of it. That's why, you know, more power to all of our primary care physicians out there who do have to know a lot of a lot <laughs> rather than just, uh, uh you know, one particular focused area of interest. So, yeah. And, and, you know, that's the thing I like about, you know, from sports medicine standpoint, it's not just all musculoskeletal care. I mean, we do tend to see things that are, are primary care things that affect the athlete, which is also the really, you know, the fun part about what we do. So Your I don't question have, to I have for you actually, because you,
0: you obviously see, so when I gave, I love it when orthopedic surgeons attend my talks, right? Because it challenges me. It's sort of like when I talk about the image SIM stuff, when a radiologist comes, I'm really happy because it really challenges me on a different level. One of the orthopedic surgeons who attended my talk on de-escalating care and ankle injuries I won't say he was very upset, but he was a little bit upset about the sprains because in his mind, he saw a lot of disability from kids with, I mean, you know, I actually, when it came down to it, he was talking about older kids. He was talking about kids with growth plates that were fused and they were repeated injuries. So I don't know if that nuance needs to be added in there because it is a different population. Like anybody in Canada who would refer a kid with an ankle sprain to an orthopedic surgeon. I mean, that almost never happens. We don't do that, you know, mm-hmm. so it would have to be someone who was a professional athlete or repeated sprains. I certainly don't want people to think that like in his mind, this was normal. This was the way it was because that's all he saw, Sure. but we don't see that. We see like the one-offs or the kids who just bounce so quickly. So I don't know if, does that caveat or that scenario need to be considered separately? Cause you might see more of that.
1: Yeah. I think it It just goes to show you again, depending on how much you become a niche practice and, and where you focus your efforts, what may seem like a mundane injury to you, you're seeing all the worst of the worst. So your, your perspective is a little bit skewed. So, you know, for me with concussion care, you know, I do see the acute injuries, but I also see a lot of the chronic kids that are, were taking a long time to get better. And perspective is very different for how we manage and, and, and take care of each of those two things. And I think, to be honest, I think for some of the orthopedic surgeons, if it's not surgery, they don't pen, tend to pay much attention. So they may think it's more disabling to the patient just because they're not actively thinking about what are the things I can do to get this person better the quickest because it is, quote, just a sprain. It's not something I'm going to need to operate on. And that's, again, that's why we emphasize in our office, we want early mobilization. We want early weight-bearing. We know those are things that are beneficial Mm -hmm. to get someone better after an ankle sprain. So the sooner we can start those processes... The better. I did a podcast episode a while back, just you know, looking at the the myth is is ice actually helpful after an ankle sprain? And, and it, the literature doesn't show that it really yeah. probably makes I much of a difference. Of it doesn't show that do. it's harmful, yeah, but it yeah. also doesn't show that it makes much of a difference. There so, isn't
0: much evidence on our sprain pathway generally. No. there was a study done by Rob Bryson on the use of physiotherapy, which showed no benefit in adults. It was all in adults that showed they had a really it was a nice design. I think it was published in BMJ. And they showed no benefit to structured physiotherapy attending visits versus giving them exercises to do at home
1: Mm -hmm. the problem is is for a lot of these things that are considered you know no big deal problems and there's not a lot of disability to them there's not a lot of research that's done to them because everybody just assumes well it gets better on its own we don't really have to do research but you know again you know we make clinical assumptions like we're talking about with the salter-harris-1 fibular fracture that you know is out there as this default thing it's probably there When in reality, it's probably not. And we're probably treating kids with boots or casts or what have you that a provider may use for this person because they're worried that it is a fracture that they really don't need to do. And these kids could be potentially back doing things sooner and getting better sooner rather than treating them like it is that particular problem, because that problem is pretty rare in what we have in the literature One thing
0: I will say, actually, which you may want to include in the podcast is that sometimes there is anxiety about what the parent will think if their child has a growth plate injury and whether this fracture, growth plate fracture and whether or not this needs to be casted. My personal experience is that as soon as you explain to the parents what this is and what it means for the future and what we know about it, that they are more than happy to accept a management strategy that is more convenient for the same or even better clinical outcome because kids can return to activities as soon as it's tolerated by their symptoms. So it's uh, it's important because one of the barriers that we identified in implementing all this evidence of de-escalating management was, oh, but the parents expect the cast. But they really don't. They expect what we tell them is appropriate. They really do listen to a trusted healthcare professional. And it's in our own confidence to communicate that that is the more important thing than a parental expectation. In fact, some of my research actually has found its way into parent magazines because it's of such high relevance in those sectors.
1: Sure. And, you know, when you talk about that, our institution here has done a lot of the research on distal radius buckle fractures in kids and whether a cast versus a simple wrist brace is sufficient and showing that wrist brace is sufficient. clinically. Actually, did, lots- you
0: see, did you not see the recent Lancet article?
1: Uh, I have not.
0: Oh, the, you need a podcast on that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, and actually, I'd be happy to do it. But the lead author, I mean, I've done a lot of work on buckle fracture of the distal radius. And so I could, e- I could do it. But if you want someone different, then the person who did it is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon out of the UK. He actually trained in Toronto sick kids as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon and then went there and then did this trial. So what he did takes it even one step further. So what they did was, is they randomized kids to a removable device versus what they call an offer of a bandage which is essentially nothing you know it's essentially just little soft comfort rule and what they showed and their their what their main outcome was pain at a certain number of days like they had different time points and they did an equivalent study which is the hardest study to do because what you're trying to show is that they're the same and so the difference between you know pain scores has to be very small which it was and they had 28 sites and Thousands of children, and essentially they found equal so so really, it should not, the debate on cast versus brace is not even the debate to me anymore. The debate is whether you should be doing anything at all. like you know, but I hope that anyone who's casting can stop now because they've now shown that doing nothing for these injuries is more than enough, but that would make a really good podcast. I mean it would.
1: Um, but one question one and this would be the thing i would kind of talk about with that particular problem is what's been defined as a buckle fracture. And I see this unfortunately in my office way too often where someone comes in and they've been told that they have a buckle fracture. And clearly when you look at the X-ray, it is not what we would define as a buckle fracture. And it's an unstable potential fracture because it does extend over to the volar surface if it's a dorsal sided buckle fracture. And those are different animals, but they're oftentimes called buckle fractures by radiologists. And that's where you can get yourself into the trap. So, you really have to be comfortable knowing what a buckle fracture looks like on an X ray and making sure it truly is that buckle fracture because they can go bad. And I have plenty of examples of that, of ones that were assumed to be buckle fractures. And now the kid, they angulate, which is not what we would expect for a buckle fracture. We consider a buckle fracture truly a stable fracture. So, I think that's, that's the important part for that is got to really know what you're talking about and what you're seeing there if you're going to go down that route of care. Because yeah, Google I mean, I've had, a,
0: I've had extensive conversations over this, but a couple things. The big nuance there is less about, it's a little bit about what you just said and a lot about the age of the patient. So um, I've talked about this with our orthopedic surgeons and actually have a colleague who does general emergency medicine, but has one of those minor fracture follow-up clinics um, Mm -hmm. and his orthopedic group, which are general orthopedic surgeons feel exactly the same way you do. But essentially suffice to say that our orthopedic surgeons. So in the papers we've published, which is why we created images about 10% of kids who were said to have a distal radius buccal fracture, had green stick fractures, or they had Salter 2 fractures of the distal radius. But the key thing is that oftentimes when people make that mistake, it's not a hugely displaced, you know, Salter 2, and it's not like a very displaced green stick. And any advancement in the displacement that happens and follow up in a skeletally immature child, and that's the key, right? But in a skeletally immature child, they can remodel And essentially in a year or two, you did nothing at all. They would do just as well as if they had some sort of manipulation closer to the time. But I think this is where I think there's a little difference in the U.S. versus Canadian practice around this, because our orthopedic surgeons, for example, I could show you examples of things that would have been reduced, you know, in, let's say, an ER setting somewhere else, whether it's general orthopedic surgery or some areas of the U.S., Whereas they don't do that here because they know that the remodeling potential of the distal radius is amongst the highest of all, you know, it's like the, almost like is the proximal humerus, you know, Mm -hmm. they don't tend to differentiate between types of distal radius fractures. This Lancet study was interesting because I was a reviewer on the paper and it's one of my criticisms because they didn't, like they gave their, you know, doctors some teaching, you know, which whatever, they made mistakes, but they didn't track it. They didn't say you know, uh, so we found that these were green sticks. And so let's take them out of the study and put them in a cast. No, they because this is a pragmatic study. They just said, let it, let it go. So the kids who maybe had some of what you're describing and then they followed them for outcomes and they found that there wasn't any problem. So sometimes the way it looks on an x-ray can be scary, but it doesn't look that way on the outside and these kids sort of heal on their own and there's no cosmetic or functional problems. So I think this is where it gets tricky, right? Because you also have to understand that it varies with age and not everybody's going to have that much information they can pack into their heads. Like what age girls mature faster than boys. So at what point do you start to consider those fractures differently? Is it 10 or 11 for girls, 13 for boys? And that's where people like my colleague, Aaron Sale, start to say, you know, general eMERGE physicians have so much on their minds. You start to nuance it like this. And this is where, you know, things things can happen but if you look at most of the buckle fracture studies they they exclude green sticks except for this lancet paper you should have a look at it they didn't they just put it all in there and just said let's see what happens and they really had no bad outcomes so it was very powerful in that way yeah but you're right that it does rely on the initial person making the right diagnosis to begin with
1: yeah. And I think, you know, I look at it also in terms of being a sports medicine physician and knowing that I have athletes that want to get back to their sport. And yes, even though a break, if it displaces or it angulates and there's potential for great remodeling, that may also, if it does do that, that may keep that athlete from being able to participate in their normal sport for a while. An example I use is gymnastics for a radius. Mm. If I'm going to have someone make their arms and the legs, that better be a functioning arm, right? And if it's an angulated fracture, and we're waiting for that to remodel over months and months and months, that may keep that athlete out of activity for a while. So I think it's we just have to put that all in perspective, right? Yeah,
0: I think you're right. And I think this is where the art of it comes in. Yep, absolutely. This is where you know the evidence can only say so much, and it can't say everything for one patient, not even this thing stuff that we talked about today, just like I brought up those extreme older kids with repetitive sprains. We can't sort of blanketly apply evidence as if it's the solution to every patient's management.
1: Great discussion. And this is a bonus for all of my listeners is you're not just getting Salter Harris one fibula today. You got a bunch about distal radius buckle fractures as well. And I'll, I'll include a link to that article as well. So you can look at that. And then we may take that off into another tangent with another podcast there too, because I do also have some of my colleagues I'm going to bring on in a future podcast episode. We're going to talk about the fact study that looked at clavicle fractures and how a lot of the change has been. We shifted towards looking at treating these more operatively. And then now looking at them pediatric and adolescents where we've swung the pendulum back. And it looks like most of these we should and can and still should be going non-operative with these. We like to end our, our podcast with something we call the pearl of the podcast. It's our guest's opportunity to leave us with that little tidbit of important information about this topic. So Kathy, what is your pearl of the podcast?
0: First of all, thank you again for, for having me on the on the podcast. So, in terms of the pearl, I'm a dedicated researcher and I also understand the limitations of of research and While we inform our decisions for our patients using evidence, we also have to consider all the individual patient factors that go into decision making to choose what we do for a patient. And it's not wrong. There is no right and there is no wrong. We inform our decisions based on all the information out there, which includes the patient we have in front of us and what they have to tell us about their priorities, as well as what we know about how these injuries heal and optimal management in general circumstances.
1: Fantastic. I'd really like to thank Dr. Kathy Budis for her time and expertise, and especially for her research efforts to prove us wrong with our (laughs) assumptions about the Salter-Harris-1 fibular fracture. This is the kind of stuff, it fires me up, it gets me excited about what we learn and how we learn something new, and the most important part of that is how we can apply that and change our practices and our approach to treating these patients. I know it's made a difference in my practice personally, just having this extra knowledge, so thank you for that part of things. Hopefully, it'll do the same for a lot of our listeners who are out there doing clinical pediatric orthopedics or sports medicine. And be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter. And shortly, we will be on Instagram. We do value your feedback. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host. And this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead,
0: and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.